0: This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Saint. At this festive time of the year, it is more than usually desirable that we, as podcasters, should make some slight provision towards seasonal topics. And while I'm sure you're saying, are there no other podcasts, no saccharine TV specials, no glut of YouTube videos about the origin of Christmas, we would point out, that many would rather die than go to YouTube. And while it would certainly deplete the surplus population, we can't do that to our dear listeners. For to us, the holiday season is no mere humbug. And the common welfare of our listeners is our business. And yet, so many topics have been so overdone, especially when it comes to Christmas, which is our winter holiday of choice. And there's only so many times we can discuss the centuries of cultural diffusion that combined Roman, Celtic, and Christian traditions that, with a sprinkling of a few good books and poems that canonized this and that, became the modern celebration of Christmas. And we have no desire to discuss that Krampus nonsense that kids these days have fixated on because it gives them something cooler and edgier with which to celebrate a holiday. They are just too hip to enjoy for what it is. But there is a very interesting connection between Christmas, Dungeons and & Dragons, and real-life religious practices that not only make for several very good stories, but also provide excellent fodder for any game in which heroic figures live on after their death to affect the world. The best place to start the story is in a port village called Petara in Asia Minor in 270 CE. There, a young man named Nikolaus, was born to a wealthy Greek family. Unfortunately, both of his parents died from a plague that swept through the region. He was left with a considerable sum of money and a devoutly religious Christian uncle who educated the boy and helped him become a priest. Nicolaus, or Nicholas to give his Anglicized name, spent several years living with a small order of monks in Bethlehem. Then, he traveled a fair bit before he returned to Asia Minor, which we now call Turkey, and was consecrated as the bishop of the city of Myra. And that's about all that has been historically verified about this individual, who would eventually be canonized as a saint. But that's not all there is to this Saint Nicholas. Yes, that's who we're talking about right now, no sense trying to hide it, but trust us, this gets interesting, because it leads to a very interesting discussion about the concept of sainthood, how the Catholic definition of sainthood differs from the general Christian definition of sainthood, how virtuous figures can attain status, and ultimately, that all leads us to an interesting supernatural figure in Dungeons and Dragons. Also, there's that story about how Santa Claus once slapped the snot out of someone and what sailors have in common with kids on Christmas. So, back to the story. Before Nicholas became the Bishop of Myra, he'd already built a reputation as a pretty good guy. In fact, he was an amazing guy, a wonderful guy. Before Nicholas was St. Nicholas, before he was even Bishop of Myra of Lycia, Nicholas was already being called Nicholas Thaumaturgos. Nicholas the Thaumaturge. Nicholas, the Wonder Worker. By the way, you might have heard the word thaumaturgy or thaumaturge or something similar in some game or other. It's a popular term for magic, and it comes from the Greek. Thauma means a marvel, wonder, or something spectacular. Ergos means to do or craft. So a thaumaturge is someone who makes marvels and works wonders. First of all, Nicholas had been so moved by Jesus' words in the Bible to sell what you have and give the money to the poor that he, as a child, gave away his inheritance to charity. Specifically, he used the money to help poor children and those suffering from terrible illness. But that wasn't enough to earn him his wonderful nickname. See Nicholas had supposedly worked numerous miracles in his young life as a wandering priest and monk. In one of the earliest, and remember this one, it'll be important in a bit, one of his earliest miracles occurred when he was returning by ship from his pilgrimage to Jerusalem. One night, the ship was caught up in a terrible storm. The storm was so fierce, it threatened to tear the sails and riggings right off the ship. In that situation... The practice is to take down the sails to prevent the sails, rigging, and masts from becoming damaged, and to prevent the ship being blown on its side. But even with the sails down, the ship was being tossed around by the mighty storm, and the sailors begged the young Nicholas, who they knew was returning from a holy pilgrimage, to pray for their safety. To their wonder, as he prayed, the storm suddenly lifted enough for the ship to ride it out to safety. Another tale tells of Nicholas solving a murder and then resurrecting the people who were murdered. Seriously. While he was staying at an inn, he had a dream about three young travelers who had been murdered and robbed by the innkeeper. When he awoke, he followed the clues in his dream to a pickling tub where the three bodies had been stashed. Then he resurrected them by praying for their return. And then the innkeeper was brought to justice. But the most famous story involves a few socks, a fireplace, and secret gifts delivered under the cover of nightfall. Now, there are many different versions of this story, and some are pretty gruesome. We'll stick with the bare-bones version. What you have to understand is that Nicholas, after he became a bishop, kept up his charitable ways. But, because he didn't want to appear prideful, he often did his charitable donations and acts of kindness in secret, he wanted no credit. He would sneak small toys into the homes of sick children or sneak money into the hands of the poor. And once he heard of a poor family with three daughters. The family was so poor that they could never have afforded a dowry for one daughter, let alone three. What's a dowry? Well, it was an ancient practice in many cultures wherein the bride's family would give a sum of money to the groom or his family before the two were to be married. There were a number of reasons for dowries, and different cultures had different reasons. In the modern era, a lot of scornful interpretations have been written about the practice that simply ignore the historical context in which it occurred. But, in Greece and Rome... One interesting facet was that the dowry was to be returned in the event that the woman died. So, there, it seemed like a bit of insurance to keep the bride from being mistreated and to ensure the groom would protect her health and safety. By the by, in Greece, the dowry was called ferna. Interestingly, the bride could also bring her own property into the marriage which was considered solely hers. That property was considered beyond the dowry, or... Parapherna. And from that, we get the word paraphernalia, which basically just means miscellaneous stuff. But we digress. Without a dowry, the girls could not be married. And here's where the stories diverge and talk about all number of possibilities, right down to selling the girls into prostitution or slavery. It doesn't matter. What matters is Nicholas of Myra hears this story and, to help out, drops a small purse of coins down the chimney one night, where they get caught in a sock that was hanging out to dry. Enough for the first daughter's dowry. Then it happens again for the second daughter. So the father starts keeping watch, and when the third daughter's dowry magically falls down the chimney, he catches Nicholas in the act. Nicholas begs the father to keep his secret, but the story gets spread around. Needless to say, Nicholas, Bishop of Myra, was a pretty popular dude by this point. And then a new emperor came to power. Diocles was born in 240 CE to a poor family in a place called Dalmatia. He joined the Roman army at a young age and proved to be a talented soldier and a skilled leader. And so he quickly rose through the ranks. Now, at the time, the Roman Empire had spent about 30 years being mismanaged by ineffective leaders. The Germanic tribes and the Persians kept snapping at the empire's borders and the empire was going broke. At the same time, the governmental machine was grinding its gears due to rampant corruption and inefficient bureaucracy. Diocles eventually became the leader of the Emperor Numerian's personal guard. And then, on a trip to Persia, Numerian suddenly up and died of adult onset mysterious circumstances. Diocles was initially suspected, but it turned out that Numerian's father in law had actually done the regiciding. He recognized Numerian as a terrible leader and thought that he would be better. Kind of like that Shakespearean play about the lion who kills his brother in a stampede. Diocles, feeling he'd kind of failed his job as bodyguard because the body he was guarding ended up dead, killed the father-in-law to avenge Numerian. It's sort of the opposite of how Nicholas operated. Nicholas undid a murder by bringing the victim back to life, and Diocles doubled down by just killing the murderer too. And shortly thereafter, Diocles, now Gaius Aurelius Valerius Diocletian, became the emperor of the Roman Empire. Diocletian recognized that the empire was just too big for one person to manage, and if he didn't fix that, it was going to crumble. So he divvied the empire up so that it could be ruled by two emperors. He would rule the east and remain the senior emperor. His son-in-law, Maximian, became the junior emperor, who would rule the west, including Rome itself. Apparently, Diocletian never liked Rome very much. Diocletian also decided that, in order to secure a smooth transition in the event that something should happen to one of the emperors, each of the emperors appointed a lesser emperor to serve him. Thus, he established a tetrarchy, a four part rulership. Now, Diocletian spent much of his time as emperor on the battlefield, annexing large parts of the Germanic lands and also driving back Persian encroachments. And for a while, his military campaigns and his tetrarchy idea worked. It stabilized the empire. But what brings Diocletian into this story is his fear of the growth of Christianity. The Christian faith appealed to the poor and rich alike and it threatened the power of the traditional Roman priesthood. Moreover, it was tradition in Rome to treat the emperors as demigods or deities in their own right, and the Christians wouldn't do that. And so, Diocletian started a massive campaign of persecution against the Christians. First, he ordered all members of government to observe rights to the proper Roman gods, and if they didn't, they would be forced to resign. Next, he ordered the destruction of all Christian churches and the burning of all Christian texts. Christian clergy were jailed and then executed. And those who would not renounce Christianity were tortured. In short order, Nicholas ended up in jail. But then Diocletian died. And his tetrarchy proved to be his undoing. And also saved Nicholas because after he died and his son-in-law stepped down, their successors, and the successors they appointed, ended up in a series of succession wars over who would rule what, and who was in power. This allowed Constantine to step in, assume the throne, and cement the division of the empire between Rome and Byzantium. And because Constantine was a Christian himself, He officially recognized Christianity, released the Christians that had been wrongly jailed, and convened a conference in the city of Nicaea wherein the Christian bishops could work out an official body of governance to represent them in governmental affairs. It was at this conference that another bishop, Arius, disagreed with some of the predominant views of Christianity at the time. Specifically, he objected to the idea that Jesus was divine himself, and promoted the idea that he was merely the mortal son of God, and not part of the same essence as God himself. Apparently, Nicholas became so offended that he slapped the spit out of Arius right there at the conference. But why is any of this interesting to a gamer? Well, apart from it being a neat story, it's actually the word tacked onto Nicholas's name in the modern age that interests us. Nicholas was a saint. Saint Nicholas. And sainthood is a very interesting concept. And Dungeons and Dragons even has its own saint. At least it used to. Saint Cuthbert. The concept of sainthood, which comes from the same root as sacred and sanctify, is introduced in the Bible. But biblically, everyone is a saint. At least, every good Christian is a saint. If you live by Christian virtues, you are considered one with Christ. Therefore, when you die, you are a saint. But sainthood is very different in the Roman Catholic tradition. The idea began simply enough. It began with martyrdom. A martyr was someone who died in service to their faith and whose death therefore affirmed their faith. This sort of thing happened in the early days of Christianity, and especially during the persecution of Christianity under the rule of Diocletian. But, in around the 4th century CE, it also became common for local parishes to recognize those whose lives had affirmed their faith. That is, they had lived a good life, done wonderful things, and then died. These particularly devout folks were recognized as local saints, Such saints were written into church teachings, and their tombs were honored like those of martyrs. And often, they had feasts associated with them. For example, St. Nicholas's feast is observed on December 6th. Now, for someone to get official recognition as a martyr or a confessor, a process was followed to confirm the individual was really deserving of the honor. Over the years, various processes were followed for canonization. The Latin word, canonizare, means to officially recognize something as authoritative. It means to establish a canon, an authoritative or definitive work. And that became the word for confirming that a martyr or confessor was deserving of recognition. Now, as the Catholic Church gained power and developed its own central authority under the Pope, It became responsible for canonization. And, as you might remember, the papacy became very powerful during the Middle Ages under feudalism. During the Middle Ages, another practice became more common. See, it was the belief that a saint, someone who was recognized as a particularly devout individual, would have a little more sway with God in the hereafter, particularly on certain matters. Thus, it became a practice to pray to particular saints to pass along a prayer directly to God or to intervene directly in a specific matter. For example, it was not uncommon to pray to St. Nicholas when a child was in danger. In one story, after a child was kidnapped by Arab pirates who sold the child into slavery, the child's mother prayed to St. Nicholas. Suddenly, on the night of the feast of St. Nicholas, the saint himself, this was after he died, mind you, The saint himself appeared, grabbed the child, and flew him home to his parents. And this leads into the idea of patron saints. The idea is very simple. Some saints are designated as the protectors of specific places, people, or things, or they are otherwise associated with certain ideas. Saint Nicholas, for his miracles, is recognized as the patron saint of children and of sailors. Thus, if you pray specifically to him when it comes to the safety of your boat or child, he might intervene directly or convince God to intervene. But here's where things get tricky. See, this patron saint business is a part of Roman Catholic traditions. But some more Orthodox Christian traditions and people take umbrage with it. First of all, as we mentioned, the Bible specifically notes that all people who lived a life in accordance with Christian values are saints. None are more special than any other. Second of all, the Bible specifically forbids praying to the dead, or to anyone other than God himself. So there are those who see the practice of praying to saints, or even the canonization of saints, as non-biblical. But, in general terms, The word saint can be used as the general name for a mortal hero whose virtue has granted him or her special supernatural status in the afterlife. And that is definitely a useful concept for a gamer. And technically, one of the first two gods in D&D was a saint, not a god. Some players of the earliest version of Gygax's fantasy game, which would eventually become D&D, Some of those players were clerics and wanted a specific god for their characters to worship. Gygax didn't see the need for specific deities and an organized religion. But, in a fit of sarcasm, he added two gods to the game. The first was Fultus, whose cults refused to accept the existence of any other god or point of view. And the second was St. Cuthbert, who dealt with non-believers by bashing their skulls in with a cudgel. You might recognize a bit of editorializing about the state of religion in these two divine figures. But what's interesting is that St. Cuthbert was a real saint. Gygax didn't just invent him. Cuthbert of Northumbria was born in 634 CE and was raised at Melrose Abbey in present-day Scotland. During that time, there was a lot of tension in the Christian church over which traditions and practices to follow. Many folks wanted to follow the more familiar Celtic rituals, but they were being forced to adopt Roman rituals and practices. This made a lot of people angry, but Cuthbert was able to smooth the tensions. He, himself, had been raised according to Celtic traditions, but he accepted the decree that he follow the Roman ones, and with sensitivity, tact, and patience, he won over his parishioners. Cuthbert also had a reputation for prophetic dreams and for healing. After spending several years as a hermit, he came out of his self-imposed retirement to take the position of Bishop of Lindisfarne and help the people who were being ravaged by illness there. Soon thereafter, he prophesied his own death and resigned in time to return to his hermitage and pass away in peace. St. Cuthbert is one of the more famous and respected saints in northern England. During his life, he had a reputation as the Wonder Worker of England. His remains are a very popular destination for pilgrims in England to this day. But his remains took a long, long trip to get where they are. And interestingly enough, there is one last little coincidental connection between St. Cuthbert and St. Nicholas that involves Cuthbert's 300-year journey to find a tomb to call home. In the late 800s, Lindisfarne, where Cuthbert had been entombed, was invaded by the Danes. Fearing that his tomb would be plundered, a group of monks dug up his bones and protected the saints' remains for several years while trying to find a new place to enshrine them. Eventually, they were laid to rest at a church in Durham. Ironically, they were granted the church by a Danish king who had converted to Christianity. But, a century later, another Danish invasion caused them to be moved again. And then, when William the Conqueror led the Normans to England, Cuthbert's bones were moved again. They were finally enshrined in Durham again, along with the head of another saint, St. Oswald, whose remains had also survived being moved to avoid plunder. And that is why the disembodied head of St. Oswald is the symbol of St. Cuthbert. What does this have to do with St. Nicholas? Well, before William the Conqueror set out for England, he supposedly prayed to the patron saint of sailors for a safe voyage. St. Nicholas. And doesn't that just tie a neat little bow on our Christmas story of sainthood? Consider that our little gift to you. And to all of our listeners, we say Merry Christmas... Shagurum Shamesh, Yenu Iwi na Heri, Seasons Greetings, and Happy Holidays! For whatever you celebrate, and whatever you believe, we wish you all of the best this holiday season, and a wonderful New Year. Thanks for listening. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by the Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and gmwordoftheweek.com.